0: Happy New Year, everyone. Wow. Here we are. It's 2019. The weather is warm on the East Coast, but there's also opportunity in the air. And For you Suiting Up podcast listeners, you know that on the last episode I teased, running a final highlight podcast, publishing some of my favorite moments from the guests of 2018, and with the help of my chief of staff, Andrew Manning, shout out to Andrew, mixed with, I think, the turn of the year, which is a really reflective time for me, and hopefully you too. We slightly altered our highlighted moments to skew more towards lessons learned, many of which can help you. Well, I'll say that at the very least, they've certainly helped me shape, structure, and set a lot of my personal and professional goals for 2019. We did our best to pull from not only some of the most reflective themes, but also string them together in a way that can make sense to all of us, no matter the timing of our lives, whether it be a high moment or a low moment, athletically, personally, or even professionally. I think each of these moments from our guests can ring true for us in an individualized way, which I think is also my favorite part of hosting this show. It's uniqueness of every conversation and the interpretation that we each unlock having to do with our respective life narratives. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. Enjoy my 2018 season highlight episode this January 2nd, 2019. Guests feature Steve Nash, Christian Fuchs, Jay Dyer, Kyle Harrison, Eric Nardini, Mike Levine, also known as Vino, Tiki Barber, Tony Robbins, Adam Grant, Rich Antonella, and Mr. Rob Pinnell. You know what's smart? Kicking off 2019 by planning out which roles your business needs to hire for. It's a big task for the PLL right now. We're constantly looking for talent to support us off the field for the ridiculously talented players we have on the field. And you know what else is smart? Starting the new year off by going to ZipRecruiter.com forward slash cross to hire those right people. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates for you. And they do so using their powerful matching technology that scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience. Then they actively invite them to apply to your position so you get qualified candidates fast. And that's also why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers across the U.S. That rating comes from hiring sites on Trustpilot with over 1,000 reviews. So right now, my student podcast listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address ziprecruiter.com forward slash cross. If you love the show, show your support for us, ZipRecruiter, and your business by going to ziprecruiter.com forward slash C-R-O-S-S-E. That's ziprecruiter.com forward slash cross. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, here we go. We're shaping the show by clipping commentary from each guest, pertaining to skill development, defining character moments, and how to pursue a successful and fulfilling life. And we're going to start off with Steve Nash, a childhood idol of mine. And by the way, Steve grew up playing lacrosse in Canada. Here we go. When you were exploring your style of play, especially in college, which is, from the the public's perception, more coached than Mm -hmm. the pro game, but certainly, given the reins to uh showcase your skill and your your kind of your floor generalizing generalism and uh and so for you, was there a starting period before that? was it you know coach Davy that helped you along the way, or were you continuing to uncover mm-hmm. your skills as you got into the pro like what yeah. defined Steve Nash as a player? Yeah. Was that a moment? Yeah.
1: No, I, I think I was always an underdog. You know, I had one scholarship offer to Santa Clara. And no, one, my, you know, he he made that comment where he said, "I just looked around and hoped no one was else else was in the gym, and no one was." And I got a scholarship offer, and that was it. I took my chance. I went down there, and you know, I I started my freshman year as like the backup point guard, played ten minutes a game you know the the starting point guard was a great college player, terrific defender, physical quick um, he was a good playmaker, but couldn 't shoot or he would have played in the n b a and mm. He he killed me every day in practice and pickup games before the season. I could barely get the ball up the court on him. For someone who was known everywhere I went for being a great ball handler, I, I just physically couldn't handle him. Huh. And so I would back him up. I played 10 minutes. I was underwhelming. And then at Christmas, he had a scope on his knee. So I started for two or three weeks and played really well. So when he came back, Coach was like, we got to find more minutes for you. Um, and so I ended up playing 30 minutes a game the rest of the way. Playing, you know, the backup one, the backup two, um, and moving around a little bit so I can get all those minutes. And then, you know, not to not to pat myself on the back, but ended up being the conference tournament MVP. So in the span of four or five months, I went from playing being a ten-minute a game backup point guard who was like taking one or two shots to having twenty-seven points in the final game of the conference. You know, it was quick, but I think it showed that I'm a, I'm a late bloomer. I came from an unheralded place. I had you know, high hopes and belief, but I also needed to adapt to the level of play and the speed, and the size. And so I it took me a while and I was able, because the building blocks were there, I'd put in the work, I had the skills. Once I could kind of cope with the physicality of, of Division I basketball, my skills could come through. And so that's the same as the NBA. You know, I went through four years of college where mm-hmm. I got myself to a great position. I went to the NBA. I think people realize you know, in Phoenix, when I was there, like I could really play I had a lot of skills, but I also had Kevin Johnson, Jason Kidd, and, you know, was still learning and figuring it out. And you know, then I had some injuries with in my back, and so you go through these ups and downs in this process. But I was able to persevere because of that resilience, that grit. Right? Like I never would give away days. I would, I'm going to work today. You yep. know, I never like, well, I'm not going to shoot before practice today. Yep. No, I ever. It's like non-negotiable. I'm shooting before. I'm shooting after. I might shoot tonight. Um, you know, working on my game, whatever it may be. So. Um, that resilience carries you through the ups and downs and the adversity you face, and it spits you out on the other side way ahead. Um, and I think that's kind of like the, the biggest factor in my story is that I went from one scholarship offer to you know being one of the best players in the NBA because I never gave away days at any stage.
0: And as Steve highlights exploration and commitment, I sat with English Premier League soccer superstar Christian Fuchs to discuss work ethic at the highest level, for club and country. Christian was awesome during our interview in New York. I've built a nice relationship with him since then. Take it away, Christian. When did you get really serious about the game and now playing at the highest level for country and for club you know how much it takes like there's always that moment from like thinking we're working hard to then all of a sudden like this is real work ethic it, it was still
2: developing even if i was professional already i still developed the, the hunger or i was still learning certain things so when it was like 12 13 then i was like well maybe that could be something but far away from being professional. I mean, you can sign your first deal when you're 15 years old. Yeah. So I signed my first deal when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Then I was at the national team first time when I was 19. Yeah. And we played against Croatia. So within those two years, I was already learning a lot by, by the the older guys that were in my team, yeah. uh, more experienced guys, all international players that played in England and uh, Spain, Germany, whatsoever. And it was always my goal but something was still missing and I played my first, first game for the Austrian national team against Croatia eight minutes I think I touched the ball once yeah. which was amazing one contact wow <laughs> but, but to, to look up to all those players like Niko Kovac who is now Bayern Munich head coach yeah. or Petrich or whoever was playing there and just seeing how much more physical they are hmm. so the game was over I went straight into the gym to work out yeah. because I, I was like okay I want to be where they are so I need to do this workout right away. I need to start working on myself right away. So it was always a progress, always a progress.
0: So you didn't have the, like a bunch of coaches hammering down at you as a young teenager to I, be like, you need to be in the gym here. You need to be doing this. You but, figured well, it out on your own. Well, I, I had this one person that guided me
2: throughout my, starting when I was 11, 12, throughout my whole career. I'm still working with him on my programs that I have. Um, wow. And after that game, I asked uh, the president from the club that I played for in Austria, listen, I want him to work for Le- for Mattersburg, which was the yeah. club called, but for me only. And he said, that's fine, let's do it. They hired him and he was there for me only every day, at least another half an hour, 45 minutes, additional to team training, and it really paid off.
0: Yeah, the consistency is huge in development. Would you Would you consider yourself relative to some other star footballers now that, that you play with, uh, a later bloomer? No. 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 Early bloomer. Early bloomer. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm thinking about our conversation around Ibrahimovic. I mean, he's still blooming. On. I can tell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 I, I was thinking about our conversation about Ibrahimovic, and I, I watched his uh, Becoming Zlatan on on Netflix, and that guy like bumped around country to country at a young age, and from what I've gathered, at least, through some of my peers that play football, is like that, that's pretty common for top talent or just talent that's going up to professional ranks. You said you start at—you can start at as early as 15. You stayed in Austria until you were 17 I'm, or maybe I'm longer. 21, until, 21. 21 until you yeah. went over to FC Schalke.
2: Uh, no,
0: not right away. I went to Bochum for
2: two years. Okay, which was where? Germany. Germany. Then one year in Mainz. Which was a similar season like we had with Leicester, but we didn't yeah. end up winning. But we were very successful, smaller team, very Re- successful. shitty research right there. Yeah, horrible. I thought you were prepared, but okay. am And then Schalke for four years, which yeah. was by far the, the biggest club I played for. Yeah. But four years Champions League every time. Yeah. Great names like Raul, Huntala, who I played with, Jamie Jones. Yeah, Huntala was. Oh awesome. is awesome. Yeah. He's now back in IX. I, I was using guy, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I, I was using him as my key player when I first yeah. started playing FIFA. Oh,
2: got you a lot of points. <laughs> yeah. Scored a lot of goals for yeah. you. Yeah. Kicked great. all my roommates' asses. <laughs> yeah, I held the title. He was a, yeah, <laughs> no, he was amazing
0: to play with. It's a great experience. Also Raul was yeah. outstanding, outstanding. So, so do you think all that time in your native country was really helpful to building consistency and yeah. finding out who you yeah. were versus 100% yeah a lot of guys don't do that they, is, is it up to them or was it up to you to say hey I want to go to play in Germany no I, I, I they were the first I would have been, I scouts. would have been able
2: to go to Germany earlier but I, I felt like no I need more time I need more time to develop myself and more time with my coaches with the players that I played with to simply be Mature enough.
0: For many of you that follow me on social media, you may know my strength and conditioning coach, Mr. Jay Dyer. We go back over 15 years. I started working with him as a senior in high school, leading into my freshman year at Johns Hopkins. And in 2018, I sat down with Jay to share that story as well as discuss the proper training habits. And this is a great follow on to Christian Fuchs' work ethic commentary as we give, I should say, Jay gives actual utilities, which is a huge part of this show. Here we go, Jay. What does a, a high performance athlete exhibit? And we'll start with like at the kid level where you see, where well, you can identify this person's a, a potentially a peak athlete.
3: Well, a lot of it just comes down to their, uh, their pre-testing measures. I mean, if you are doing a 10 or a 20 yard dash or a, broad jump or a vertical jump or any of those testing, they're all going to be related to speed and power and they're going to, you know, they're going to make your raise your eyebrows mm-hmm. because you know what looks normal and you know what looks like somebody that's, you know, in the top 5%. Yeah. Um, so the interesting thing is if they show that early on in their middle school years, whether they maintain that through high school. Um, sometimes it's easier to, to get a kid that's uh, a late bloomer in high school and watch them, their, you know, trajectory goes way up, whereas opposed to a kid that maybe was uh, matured early in, you know, in middle school they're just ahead of the game right now from a maturity standpoint and they understand how to use their bodies and they haven't gone through a, the gawky like growth spurt or anything like that. Um, So they just excel and then they might actually slow down in high school. So I think it's like uh, for your kids that are going to be high performers. I mean, again, I've had kids that we've started with in middle school and then have gone on to play Division One athletics. And when you see them in middle school, you're like, wow, this kid's really talented from yeah. a movement standpoint. And then it just continues. They just continue to show that as they go through. There's other kids that have been – Wow, this kid's a freak! And then by tenth grade, you're like, "Oh, what happened?" You know.
0: What are some of the the bigger numbers that you've seen for like a middle schooler or a high school? Let's call it high school because you know you're, you're trying. You're probably not doing any max lifts with middle schoolers, are you?
3: Yeah, we're not doing max lifts with middle schoolers. But I mean, again, like uh, I mean, we just even recently we've had you know some of our high school kids uh, that have graduated that are going into college and you know squatting two and a half times their body weight and doing three pull-ups and they're one and a quarter to one and a half times their body weight bench yeah these are all great numbers yeah uh especially when you're talking about um you know i'm a stickler for pull-ups yeah so we're not talking about people gyrating all over the place we're talking about very uh, controlled motion and stuff yeah. like that, so you have a
0: crack in your memory from my pull up <laughs> record my I, freshman year
3: <laughs> I was literally cleaning my attic this last weekend that 's the what you do when you come back from israel uh, and there's I almost cracked them open they're they're all up there, the little uh file f- um containers with all the Hopkins information in it. Get And I was like. If it wasn't so darn hot up here right now, I would Uh. probably go thumbing through it for your pull-up record number. I'm telling you,
0: man. I was in the 30s. Okay.
3: (laughs) I know. You've told me that before.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So we have – well, let's – so you said the squat two and a half times body weight. Uh, What about like a deadlift?
3: So again, a lot of it comes down to like some of those athletes might not be – Deadlifting because of uh, they've just shown that they are better back squatters than they are deadlifters, and uh, we've kind of gone with their strengths at that point. Or maybe they're not deadlifting in their you know college program that we're prepping them for, so we're maximizing their their squat time. So um, I would say that we <clears throat> prefer doing. Back squats with a lot of our athletes and a lot of our deadlifters are our kids that are, have some type of pre-existing yep. back injury when they come see us. And it's easier for us to uh, work with them from a deadlift, usually a trap bar. For their
0: mechanics.
3: For their mechanics and also taking away the idea of loading them. Uh, on their backs in regards to, like, the weight sitting on their back. Why do you like pull-ups so much? I like pull-ups so much because it's the great equalizer for people that are in love with benching. And for lacrosse players, uh, pull-ups are going to be more important in regards to just the uh, the stress that's put on an, an overhead athlete, an overhead throwing athlete. Um And again, it's kind of the whole idea of, if you can't move your own body weight, then why are we spending so much time trying to move external weights?
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Robinhood. It's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. The company strives to make financial services work for everyone not just the wealthy. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers like myself and others to invest for the first time with true confidence. And it's simple and intuitive, a clear UI, UX, design, and data presented in an easy-to-digest way. More on this now. A former Student Up podcast guest, also a personal favorite, Tony Robbins, reminded us about building financial freedom. It's most important that we, one, educate ourselves, and two, mind the fees, as he said. And Robinhood allows us to do both with an easy and free registration portal, an education zone where you can discover new stocks and track favorite companies. They have a personalized news feed, plus built-in notifications when stock prices move. My process with Robinhood was seamless and exciting, and I hope yours can be too. Robinhood is giving student Up podcast listeners a free stock, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help you build your portfolio. And you can access that right now by signing up at rabel.robinhood.com. That's R-A-B-I-L dot Robinhood From Jay Dyer's athlete performance metrics, the coaching that's needed to achieve high performance, we're going to shift back to the player, or the person, the subject. I got to interview my good friend, a former teammate at Johns Hopkins and a foe, professionally, on the field at least, and now Premier Lacrosse League Director of Player Relations, Kyle Harrison. Him and I talked about when he found success as an athlete, what that transition, that exhilarating moment was like. What do you think during your time, and probably more than one, but what was most impactful to your skill development? Is that, I mean, I watched you your freshman yeah. year. It was probably like that top two of five. No one could couldn't catch and throw, even touch you. Sure, couldn't catch the ball though. Um, you were scoring. Eh, every now you now were know. scoring and making an assist. you were every looking now for now. the big guy number twenty five. Yeah, Adam yeah. Doniger yep. was throwing it in the net. It's a good, it's a good way
4: to get an assist. Yeah, <laughs>
0: <Just> dodge <laughs> and throw it over there. But was it guidance from Coach T? Yeah. Was it gleaning from other players? Was it your own work ethic? Yeah,
4: I think I think it was it was. Uh, Watching Doniger, I think the light bulb went off, right? Like, I mean, what you'd watch him do by himself, no lights on, practice is over, just massive dude, field, bunch of balls, just ripping the net down over and over and over again. And then you saw it literally immediately translate to Saturday. Like yeah. he'd do it here and then he'd go do it there. Like that immediately made sense. Like, all right, well, if I just put the work in, it's going to happen. And then Coach T structuring that and like teaching me not to just go out there and do what Doniger does because I, I can't do that. That's not my game. But let's yeah. put your balls... All over, you know, 10 yards up over the straining line, you make two moves, shoot it on the run. Jog back up, make two moves, shoot it on the run, because that's what I'm going to do come game time. Uh, and that's when I started seeing the improvement and the obsession started, right? Like, my freshman year, I was I was athletic, I could make plays, I could beat people, but my IQ wasn't there, right? And then sophomore year, after spending a summer watching film with Coach T and Coach Petro and Coach Dwan and shooting and understanding the game better— I just became obsessed with it because that sophomore year, the jump from like the freshman that was like, eh, decent year, like yeah. good freshman year. I was on the field to a sophomore that was an all American and up for player of the year. It was like, I'm obsessed with this thing now. Like that, that jump can happen. Like I'm going to do it again. And then I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to try and keep getting better and improve every year. Um, and I think our sport, because of that stick, like, I mean, you, you can get better and better and better. And now as an older dude, like I think it's actually an interesting dynamic and I'm sure you deal with it too. Like, so now I don't have the pop I have when I'm a freshman, right? But because of that stick and now our IQ and our understanding of the game, like yep. you can still find ways to be successful and productive. And so it's, it's unique, it's different, uh, but it, it's, it's still fun and gives you the same rush to
0: do it, if yeah. that makes sense. La- lacrosse IQ can be earned from my perspective in two ways, watching a ton of film, yep. which is, probably what Ryan Boyle was doing yep. in 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 volume compared to you and I as yep. you always saw the fields. And then part two is just through sheer experience. Yep. There's no way around playing hundreds and in our case probably thousands of games yep. over our career yep. to where, you know, as Wayne Gretzky would say when he lost some of his athleticism, he could see where the puck was going to be before yep. it got there. Yep. And so that's through scenario after scenario us being on the field for years. Yep. 20 years for me probably close to 30 years for yeah. you because you played at an earlier age than I did. I started late. Sure. But like you're seeing these plays develop mm-hmm. and you can see something happen. Yep. But I, I like how you, you frame that as obsession with practice because I'm, I'm sure you practice really hard in high school. It's why you were talented. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, you, you have strong work ethic. Sure. And your dad instilled it in you. Sure. And it's the same for me, but it's not until you actually see someone model what like real work ethic oh, is yeah. at the yeah, college yeah. level. Oh Yeah. I remember thinking in high school, I mean, I work my ass off. Right. And then I get to college and you're like, that's nothing. Right. Now, more than work ethic comes consistency, then resilience. You can't just work hard once a week. You do it multiple times. And then you have to do it after you get sick or you get injured, and that's resilience. There's no better person to describe this better and one of sports media's entertainment and business's brightest people. So, we're going to shift from on the field to the same shared habits in the boardroom. This is the head of sports at CAA, Mike Levine. During his interview, he shared why he loves sales and how important having that skill set is and how it transfers over to many others. You keep coming back to the kind of the art of just doing, and whether that was failed sales calls or pitches. There's a lot of conversation about losses that we're having and uh, knowing you that, that, that that you, you see, and you position yourself as that, the fastest way to improve is off of that from the mechanism of learning and being responsive when you were in at Cornell as an undergrad you were selling programs at football games yeah and you took an internship at CBS and your first job you didn't have a desk or a, or a chair in sports i got the underside of the chair <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was two desks
5: in the office and a chair but nothing and, stopped you from doing no way i mean honestly um I I definitely was raised in a home with two parents that uh, emphasized hard work. Um, you know, my parents came from very humble beginnings. I was raised in a very comfortable middle-class environment. Um, but the fact that my dad slept on the bench in the kitchen of his one-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn, which he shared with his parents, his sister, and his grandparents with one bathroom and one bedroom, um, You know never was lost on me and so um whether that was homework assignments as an elementary school kid or shooting free throws in the backyard because you know i wasn't good enough to not take advantage of the free throws my dad you know he echoes in my head today you got to make the free ones, son. They don't cost anything. You're not you're not scoring enough.
6: Like you're that, not
5: exactly. you're not a good enough shooter to not make the free throws when you get the privilege to have a free one. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's true in work. Um, I, I think that you got to really. Um, Coach Moran used to say, you know, uh, cheat yourself, cheat your teammates. Um, don't cut corners. And um, I, I I think that's true in work. I think that sales is a really unusual part of the business world where the amount of work you do and how hard you try is directly proportionate with the results you're going to get. And it's one of the reasons that I always loved it. And it's one of the reasons I tell young people that if they have, they think they have what it takes to sell, that they should do it. Because over the course of their careers, 30, 40, 50 years, there's going to be a downturn in the economy. Yeah. And if you can generate revenue and you can drive sales, you'll always have a job. And yeah. that's really a powerful thing. I, I I didn't realize that when I was 21 years old. I sort of fell into sales. And thank God Coach Moran forced the freshman on the lacrosse team to sell programs wow. at the football games. Yeah. He did it because he didn't want us in the football tailgates. Yeah. <laughs> he wanted to keep us out of the parking lot. And he raised money for the program. So, okay, we might have belly ached to have to be put in our lacrosse jerseys to have to walk up and down the stands during the football games, but I figured we were getting seventeen cents commission on every two dollar program that we sold and for me, I was out there, I might as well sell as many of them as i can so um so I embraced it and um and I would go home with pride with you know thirty forty dollars in my pocket after the after the end of, uh, of a game, and, and that was great. I had some money for the week, and the following year when one of the seniors who ran the program and managed the, the freshman, you know, offered me the job, Pat Leahy, defenseman, who I, I, uh, All-American defenseman out of uh, Michigan, um, he offered me the job to work with him to run the freshman program. I was thrilled. We got $40 guaranteed, and then we got a one-cent override on all this program <laughs> yeah. sold. So that was great. I was making like $75, $80. Yeah,
0: yeah. slightly uh, better comp structure than yeah.
5: the other one. And yeah. then the two of us were selling the, ga- the programs ourselves at the basketball and the hockey games
0: Amazing. during the winter. Great. Now, here's where I'll pull in additional insight from another superstar guest. You'll find in today's economic and athletic environment that sometimes it's not enough just to work hard. Or to be consistent or committed. There are soft skills that can take an elevated work ethic to an entirely different stratosphere of productivity. I interviewed Barstool CEO, also PLL advisor, Erica Nardini, to talk about this. But a challenge in today's day, day and age is there are creators everywhere that are starting at a younger age that are hyper creative and I mean one of them's in the room here, Brett, who I've been working with for a long time now. What's up, and, Brett?
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> and and uh, and and by virtue of those skill sets, because of new media and tech yep. being a part of their their upbringing, yep, um, there may not be, or or for from a CEO's perspective. You know, how do you handle the fifteen years of work that that you did in the in the kind of the soft skill development mm-hmm. that you have to make sure that a lot of the younger employees here or just across the board in advertising and marketing or it could be in any form yeah. of business how how that's communicated, how that's appropriated properly? yeah,
7: I think I think it's a lot like sports like you gotta show up, you gotta show up every day and you gotta like show up to play. Like I remember. I played field hockey with this exceptionally talented woman, but she was just a game player, right? Like yeah. she could, she could have given a shit about practice yeah. and like call, it was annoying because you couldn't, you know, it, it was wasn't annoying gamers. Yeah. yeah. Gamers. Like yeah. she was a gamer and like, she, she was awesome on the field, but it was also, she, she called it in, you know, 90% of the time it was exceptional in the game, which was awesome. And we needed that. But my thing on a career is, like, you got to be a practice player as much as you're a game player, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I I also think, like, in the Internet, everyone wants to be famous, right? Like, everyone wants fame and, and attention. And I think fame and attention is earned. Like, it's, you know, I, I have a lot of empathy for creators, including the guys and girls at Barstool, whereby to break through right now is so hard. Like, you, so, it's so hard. Like, you look at Dan Katz, I think, is one of the hardest working people on the internet, period. Like, Big Cat is an not only an exceptional talent, like a great gamer, but he grinds on Twitter every single day, every single night. Like, you know, the Rams-Raiders game went till, I don't know, 12.30, 12, 12.30 last yeah. night. And, like, he's on Twitter. He's on Twitter this morning. Like, he... So I think that there's, you know, I think people think that people think like, oh, I can be famous by being cute or being funny or being personable or being, you know, this that or the other thing. But in reality, it's a gr- like everything is a grind, whether yep. you're a creator, whether you're an accountant, whether yep. you're a business person, whether you're in marketing, like where I came from. And so I think, you know, the things for me in, in having a long career is like keep... You know, I'm realize I'm rambling on this, but like having something you believe in, working with people you love and who you support and support you and push you, and vice versa, and then being consistent in the grind.
0: Suiting Up Podcast is brought to you by Skillshare. I've been using Skillshare for over three years, which made them a great sponsor match for this show. It's a wonderful learning tool that will help you acquire new skills and one we use with new hires to catch up to speed quickly or with the many hats we each wear, with juggling balls in the air. This is an awesome service to leverage for your company to excel. Skillshare is an online learning community for creators. It has more than 25,000 classes across design, business, and more. And You'll discover countless ways to fuel your curiosity, creativity, and career. The first two are personal that intersect with the last one. You can take classes in social media, marketing, mobile photography, creative writing, or even illustration. So whether you're looking to discover a new passion, start a side hustle, or gain new professional skills, Skillshare is there to help you learn, thrive, and reach those new career goals. Consider joining the millions of people already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. You can get two months of Skillshare for free. That's incredible. Skillshare is offering student-up podcast listeners two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 courses for free. So sign up at Skillshare.com forward slash Rabel. Again, go to Skillshare.com forward slash Rabel to start your two months today. That's Skillshare.com forward slash R-A-B-I-L. Amazing stuff from Erica and company. Now let's talk about success, how one should define it, or be defined by their work. Tiki Barber, who's one of the greatest backs in NFL history, has also gone through a lot of turbulence, both personally and professionally, rebounded, and is a fantastic owner and operator. He's also one of the most introspective and reflective people I know. Here's Tiki on success. How do you think about success? What defines that for you?
6: Um, Well, it's interesting because... I I often feel like I never reach it, Mm -hmm. you know, I feel like I, I, I'm, it's always like, what, what's next, right? What am I doing next? I've, I've yet to feel comfortable, Mm -hmm. even though I've had a lot of successes and a lot of different things. It's an elusive thing, right? Yeah. It feels elusive to me. Like, how can I, how can I climb again? Right. How can I take the next step? And it's not like I'm, you know, clawing to get up to the next plateau. It's just, you, you, see it and you're like, all right, I want to be there. And how do I get there? And, um, I guess success is, is, is happiness in a way and contentness with whatever it is you're doing. And I think it's one of the reasons that when I left the NFL, you know, people questioned it. I was 31. I had, had three seasons in a row of 15, 18, 1,700 you know, yards plus, 2,000 all-purpose. You're not slowing down. Why are you leaving? I guess in some ways I, I felt content with what I, had, what I had done. I didn't want to get beat up anymore. Um, and there was another opportunity, because NBC was calling, Fox uh, Fox was calling, and I could see that, that parallel path that I was talking about earlier getting more important. Uh, and, and the reason I say that, so my off-seasons were hell, Yeah. right? I would work, I'd go work out with Joe Carini's, you know, season ends in January, Super Bowl's over in early February by beginning of March, I'm deadlifting and squatting and, and, you, and walking with the yoke, which is a squat rack that basically has 300 pounds on it. You go take a walk with it. Like I'm doing all these things. And I remember my last couple of years, uh, I got asked to go to lunch at the, at the uh, State Department with Condoleezza Rice, mm-hmm. right? It was more important to me than going to Joe Carini, yep. right? I meet Shimon Perez at TAL. On the upper and, and midtown, mm-hmm. and he invites me to Israel. So I take a trip to Israel on the yeah. behest of the premiere, right? And so those things were becoming so much more compelling to me than preparing for an NFL season. And yeah. I guess people don't understand that. If the, if you're not actually walking in my shoes, it's like, oh, how could you – the football's end-all, be-all. It's the ultimate sports. And I mean – but, but there, I was I was an intellectual, right? There was things that were things that were striking parts of my mind that were becoming more important than – playing football on a Sunday afternoon uh-huh. uh, and the fact that I felt like I was getting older and slowing down just to tick you know, those 70 yard runs were becoming 40 yard runs. Yeah. You know, those 40 yard runs were coming 20 yard runs. You know, I'm getting caught from behind all of a sudden it's like, you know, eventually I'm going to not be the man with, with the career that
0: you were having on field. My only thought is, is I, I, I hear you and feel yeah. that moment and decision that you made And we haven't quite talked, although you mentioned the competitiveness that comes from your mother and then probably back and forth between yourself and Mm -hmm. and your brother. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have that, but leaving a, you know, continuing to rush 1500 plus yards for ongoing years is like route to best ever. Yeah. And so was there any of that? How did you let that go? Yeah. Or, or was that well, you easier know why, said than done? You know why,
6: Paul? Because I never thought that I was the best ever. Yeah, you know, I didn't Your see myself. Brother
0: says that around Hall of Fame. He's yeah, like, I don't know. Yes, yeah. I, I don't never thought that I Hall was the fame?
6: best. I never saw myself as the best ever. Like I think about Marcus Allen's of the world. Um, Walter Payton was my idol. He was. He's the. I'm never gonna be Walter Payton. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think because it happened for me late, so the first part of my career. Was a lot of fits and starts and frustration. In fact, the Giants tried to replace me multiple times. Like mm-hmm. Sean Bennett, who was the great White Hope. I love the kid uh, <laughs> from from Evansville. He was awesome. Um, uh, Joe Montgomery, we drafted out of Ohio State. We brought in Gary Brown, who has had a great career down in Houston um, before when they were still the Oilers. And then we drafted Ron Dane in 2000. Mm-hmm. Those are, those are those are my first five years, right? All of those things happened replace Tiki, replace Tiki, replace Tiki. But then all of a sudden I got it. Right? Part of it was Sean Payton changing our offense, so it was a lot of misdirection and things that fit my skill set. Uh, but then I met Joe Carini, and more importantly, Tom Coffin became our head coach, and he forced me into the accountability. So an amazing stat about my career is in my last three years, I rushed for as many yards as I did in my first seven. Mm. So I had three years of... Amazing football. I mean, it was unreal. It's yeah. probably unsustainable, but it was it was unreal, right? And eighteen hundred yards one year, and five hundred yards receiving. And I retire as one of only three guys with ten thousand yards rushing and five thousand yards receiving. It. But it all kind of happened in like a three year period. Mm. And it, I don't know. I just I knew I was good then, but in order to
0: be one of the greats, I would have had to been good from the very beginning. And when talking about success. Who is there better to share insights with than one of the most successful self-made individuals on the planet? He's impacted, I should say, impacts tens of millions of people in person and online. Why changed the past to present every year through donations, events, his speaking engagements and businesses built. Here's Tony Robbins on how he defines true wealth. And for those that, that are hungry because of desire, can read unshakable, so it's a good segue into into what I wanted to talk about, which in granularity, talking about finding financial freedom and financial prosperity, and, and that can be achieved whether you're a billionaire or a middle class family, a young entrepreneur or nine to fiver. There's there are tactics that you go through underneath yeah. the strategy, but what jumped out to me and something that that I think about try to think about daily is true wealth, and and so yeah. kind of aside from, you know the the athletic. Challenges and the training and the wins and certainly the defeats or on the business side on the contribution side of our charities How do you think about true wealth?
8: Well to me, it's certainly not money when people say somebody's a lot of money and that you know makes them rich I always laugh. I mean a lot of people a lot of money are assholes (laughs) And Money didn't make them that way, you know money magnifies whoever you are if you're mean you have more to be mean with you know, if you're loving and giving, you have more you want to give. It's you like they say
0: power corrupts, and you're saying that's not the case. That person was already corrupt.
8: That's correct. And what happens is it just magnifies. The more power, the more money, the more whatever, the more it's magnified. But, you know, I look at, I asked Sir John Templeton, who's one of the greatest investors of all time. I loved him because he started with nothing and he made all his money during the worst times. You're know, like, World War II, when when Hitler invaded Poland, and the stock market crashed, and we thought the world was over, he used the money he had and borrowed the rest. Ten thousand dollars about every stock under a buck, and many of them were on the verge of bankruptcy. But winter, people don't realize, winter is a season. Financial winter is a season. It doesn't last. Some winters are longer, some are shorter, but it's always followed by springtime. And springtime, that little ten thousand dollars made him a billionaire eventually. Hmm. So it's like. But when I asked him, what does it take to be truly wealthy? Cause I asked him that question. I wanted to hear his perspective and he's a beautiful man. He said, Tony, it's what you teach. And I said, well, I teach a lot of things, <laughs> which part? And he said, it's gratitude. Hmm. He said, you got a billion dollars and you're not grateful for your life. You're pissed off and frustrated every day. Your life is called pissed off and frustrated. You got a beautiful family and you got three children that love you or a husband or wife that loves you or a boyfriend or girl that loves you and you're worried all the time. Your life is called worry. It doesn't matter how much love is in your life. So." Gratitude is the real secret to wealth, as corny as that sounds. And so I I have a process I do every single day. Hmm. So I start my day to not assume because the human mind, our souls and our spirits are different than the mind. The mind looks for shortcuts. The mind is 2 million years old, the brain. And, you know, it looks constantly for how to protect you. It's trying to make you survive. It does not make you happy. So happiness is your job. So it's always looking for what's wrong, what to protect yourself from, what to fight, what to flight, what to freeze so hopefully you're not noticed. It's a survival instinct. If you let that thing run your life, which most of us do, especially under stress, it doesn't matter how much money you have. you're going to be a miserable suck, you're, you're, just, you're not yep. going to enjoy any aspect of your life. But whether it's money or whether it's athletics, when you're in a person where you're constantly growing – And in your case, a perfect example, you're not only growing, but athletics is about growing and giving. You're giving to the audience. You're giving to your your teammates. You know, you're taking it a step further. You're saying, I want to give in multiple venues. I don't want to just give only as an athlete. I want to give in these other ways as well. I want to give knowledge. I want to give skills. I want to give to microloans. You're prospering because you're figuring out how to give more. And I don't just mean prospering financially. I mean, you have a happier life, a more meaningful life because of that. To me, that's real wealth.
0: I'm sure professionally it's difficult if ever someone follows up a guest like Tony Robbins. But I have one of my favorite people and mentors to do that. One of the highlights of 2018 for me was getting to interview professor at Wharton School of Business, also an advisor and strategist for companies like Google and the NBA, among a dozen other Fortune 50 companies, Adam Grant. Adam and I went deep on how to give. Feel fulfilled in doing so, but also protecting yourself along the way. I'll allow him to take it from there. Maybe there's this um, misconception that it's all about hard work, it's all about passion, talent, and luck, and 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 that it can be kind of deciphered as serving the ego or taking versus this 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 idea around giving. And you've identified two polar ends of the spectrum. There there are those givers who who actually don't achieve the success because they're so selfless and they don't chase the deals. It's this paradigm that we are, are always kind of positioned in emotionally and physically. It's the differentiation that we try to study from a psychology standpoint. So for... Knowing that, and I've felt this, too, towards the back half of my playing careers, is that giving is far more fulfilling, and you see success at, at, through the light at the end of the tunnel. But what are, again, some tactics to avoid being the charitable giver that doesn't progress in career?
9: So I thought, when I started studying this dynamic, I thought that it was one continuum. On one extreme, you have you know, selfish people. On the other extreme, you have selfless people. And so I thought, okay, taker, giver, her, we're good. When I actually measured how motivated people are to help others and how motivated they are to advance their own goals, I found that they were uncorrelated. So it was actually two by two, Hmm. not, not one dimension. And, you know, one axis is basically, you know, concern for others. Givers score high. Takers tend to score low. And then the other is concern for self. And you find there are two kinds of givers. So there are givers who are not concerned about themselves. They only care about helping others. And they tend to be self-sacrificing. They neglect themselves. Mm. And they're at greater risk for burning out and also getting burned by the takers in their lives. Successful givers say, you know what? I am ambitious for other people, but I'm ambitious for myself too. And so I'm going to make sure that when I help others, it's not like I want something back. But I'm going to be careful not to do that at a personal cost so that I don't overextend myself. And if you break that down, it comes down to, I think, three big kinds of choices that we make. Uh, it's a question of who you're going to help, how you're going to help, and when you're going to help. And we, we can talk through those if you want. Yeah, would love to. So I think the the first choice is who you're going to help. Yep. Failed givers spend a huge amount of time helping takers. And one, they get mm. exploited a lot. Two, they're reinforcing that selfish behavior and letting people get away with it, Yep. which is a problem. Successful givers learn to set boundaries and say, look, if I meet somebody who's got a history or a reputation of selfish behavior... I am not going to be as generous with that person. And, you know, I I want to make sure I protect myself to not get taken advantage of.
0: Okay, we're approaching the final moments of the show. And I wanted to hit on one final topic, timing. Thus far, we've discussed work ethic, strategy, consistency and execution, resilience, introspection, success, and more. But much of life comes down to timing, which can often feel out of our control. Here's Rich Antonella, who's Complex Media's CEO and also a good friend, giving advice to me on his preference to timing and building. Go ahead, Rich. I remember listening to Finn Barnes, first round capital at the Athlete Tech Summit we were at two years ago. And he said the first question or one of the more salient questions he likes to ask his founders are, why not two years ago and
10: why not two years from now? You know, I, I cannot... State that enough. I mean, you know, I, I kind of we were talking about it before with vision and how it lines up. There's the great idea that is totally different. That's your vision, but then there's the secondary level, level layer of vision. Is is there? There's the time continuum that's going across, and is like, is the world ready for the idea? I mean, I say this, and it's kind of funny, but people are like. Oh well, look at Google and look at Facebook. Well, wait a second. Before Google, there was Ask Jeeves. Before Facebook, there was Friendster and MySpace, yep. by the way. Yeah. Um the world was ready for them at that time. Um they were not the first movers. They were not they were they were you know, um I've said this to you before and we had a big argument over it. I remember <laughs> when you were sitting you and your brother were sitting in the office and um I asked you, I don't know if you remember this, but I asked you what's better, first or best. And you were both arguing over one or the other. And I'm like, you know what? In this day and age, I don't want to be first or best. You know what I want to be? I want to be some combination of early and better. Because there's a point of diminishing returns from Hmm. best doesn't get any value in this marketplace anymore. I want to be better. And I want to be super early. I don't want to be first, but I want to be early and better. And to me in this day and age, whether it's a product, it's dis- disproportionately also in media, give me that combination. And that's going to win versus first or best every day and twice on Sunday.
0: Now a final guest for you and appropriate to end with this. I think it's a recap from my team USA teammate and one of the game's greatest all-time players, Rob Pennell. him and I recount the final second play. And the timing of the goal that won Team USA, a world championship, gold medal in Israel this past July over Team Canada. Go ahead, RP. So the, the, the moment that, that ended all things for the tournament in a positive way for us uh, was your assist to Tom Schreiber with .5 seconds left. or yeah. However, the, the scorekeeper kept left. it. Yeah, Enough time left. time left. left. <laughs> um, that game was back and forth. Uh, it was similar to our our round robin game where, except we had the lead for most of the round robin game, then they came back and took it, and we ended up taking it back with a minute left. and In this one, they were leading for most of the game, and then uh, we tied it on a couple of occasions, and ended up winning it in the final moments. What was that last five and a half seconds like for you? Because we were able to get a couple of shots prior to you taking the ball. Yeah. And having I those two You feeds. took a
11: shot. I took a shot. Jordan took a shot. Mm-hmm. And then Tom took two. Um, yeah.
0: The Tom shots were both off of your feet.
11: Yeah. And the Jordan one was like, yours was off of Dodge, right?
0: Jordan came up from X and fed me, and I, I took a step down. You took a step down. And then he, and then he, he took it again. He came around, Dodge, shot, had his helmet knocked off. Yep. Then you picked it up. Because actually, what was unique into your earlier point around trusting your teammates is. Well, I picked it up and gave it to Jordan when he came around, too. Bingo. So, Jordo took the first dodge, fed me. I took a shot, missed high. I pick it up. You pick it up, give it back to Jordo. You see he has a good matchup. Yep. He gets a great shot on the great doorstep. Had his helmet dislodged. Then, by, because of that rotation, you're the sole attack man at X. Yep. So, everything works out. So what was uh, going through your head there? I know it happens so quick, and usually athletes just act on instinct. Yeah,
11: it, it does happen quick, and you're, and you're not thinking about the moment you're in at that point. You're just in the game, right? So you're thinking, you're looking, I look at the clock, I'm like, there's five seconds left. Process that. I'm like, okay, let me try and find someone here as quick as possible. So we're just surveying the field. Yep. And Tom was, it was, it was almost weird how open Tom was. The first time around. Yeah, and for how long he stayed open. Because I have the ball on my stick, and you know, three, four, five seconds go by until Before the ref, the ref blew, blows the right. whistle. So I'm like, "Please, no one pick him up. Please, no one pick him up." And right when the ref blows the whistle, I'm ready to throw it to him. Yeah. And at the same time, like you know, we play this sport for so long, you don't even think about doing that. But then when I look back at the pass, I was like, "It was a pretty far pass." Yeah, it was, <laughs> and I was like on the end line.
0: Yeah, everything on. And the I field, had to throw it hard. So much more. I had to throw it, it hard
11: because yeah. I'm like, "There's no time left. Like I got to get this to him quick." And I don't want someone to pick him up. So I threw, like, a rocket to him, and, and he went to him, and he caught it, and he shot it. Yep. Ball goes out on the other side. And, you know, we spoke about this. And I pick it up on the – I, I didn't move where I was. I was still on the other side of the goal. So I pick up the ball over there and start running. You know, a little <laughs> a little game management here, you know, uh, haven't played for so long. is just to start running before the ref blows the whistle to get a little speed before you blows, blows it. And I think he's supposed to technically say – you need to stop. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, it's called beating the whistle yeah. in lacrosse, and you did a great job of it. So I just pick it up and I start running to where the ref's standing, to where I'm supposed to pick up a ball. And right when I get pretty much in his area, he blows the whistle while I'm still moving. Yep. And, you know, it took a step or two. And once again, you're not really thinking – about, you know, the thing I was thinking there was like, well, I'm not getting the goal. I need to just throw it to someone.
0: Yeah, there was like two point something seconds left I looked at on the, the board. field.
11: I looked at the board and it said, I believe the board in the stadium said two seconds. Yep. And so I looked at that and just like, you know, Passed the Tom the time. made a, break, a great cut and I set that up pick for him. And um, and he caught it and put in the goal. So, but I, I mean, I completely like don't remember making the pass. I don't remember seeing him open. Like I completely just like, blacked out. Yeah, it was instinctual.
0: Yeah. So a couple of things for for those that watched it or at least have have heard about the the differentiation between the clock on screen via ESPN2 and what we had on the field. And then the element of a quick whistle in lacrosse, which I think is the biggest differentiator between what we saw on the lacrosse field versus what we see in basketball with those last-second shots. And here's why. The, the clock on the field was consistent throughout. So when you picked it up after Jordan had taken that shot, there was five seconds left on yep. the field. We all saw that. Because I remember thinking I was adjacent. If Rob gets it to me quick, I have enough time to dodge and shoot.
1: Yep.
0: Um, you pass it to Tom. He shoots it. It goes out of bounds. Two seconds left. Uh, then you had that play, and he scores. But the, the difference between when you put a broadcast on, what they were trying to do is match the clock on the field clock on the field was quick to the referee whistle so that was accurate so what we saw on the broadcast was the time run out and then they tried to reset reset. it to the clock on the field now here's where the quick whistle comes in in basketball when that takes place and you reset it the ref whistles the ball in and they hand it to the player and they won't hand it to the player until the clock catches up but in lacrosse we have a fast whistle and in your case, being savvy to beat the whistle, you initiated the ball in play before the ESPN cameras or the crew could get the clock to match the field. So there's a there's a big gap there between what we have in lacrosse because of the quick whistle versus giving the broadcast ample time to reset in other sports. Yep. Important to get that off our chest.
11: It is. I mean, people don't realize that. They just, they just watch as spectators rather than understanding what actually is going on.
0: Yeah, because if you watch the screen, it does look a little bit suspect because the clock runs out. Yeah. Then it's resetting Resets. while you're playing. Yep. Right? But that's the quick whistle on the cross. Yep. And Thanks. it's being heady and quick.
11: and Thinking back, it probably should have taken our time, right? <laughs> Two seconds left. It's like, maybe we set up a play here or something. We could but, have. But we could have kinda... called a timeout. Yeah. I don't know if we had one, but Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's I mean you, a lot of teams would probably like let the ball sit for a little
0: bit. Yeah. And um, and but. listen, I I've, I've said this before, obviously we're both incredibly partial playing for team USA, so yeah. we try to look at it objectively. Um but I'll I'll say if I was on team Canada, I would have argued. Yeah. I mean that's Absolutely. that's what you do in sports. Well, you know, and
11: the other thing right now is everyone's talking about the offsides call. Yeah. But like my my big thing with that is like listen, okay, I get it. Maybe it was a wrong call. I personally think they maybe had too many men. Yeah. Um, because six guys in one small area of the field, there I figure there had to be an attacking by the goal. Yeah, we'd have to get a wide shot to find that out. But that happened at three minutes. Yeah. Like you still gotta play three minutes. Yeah. Like regardless, it happens, it's over. Refs make bad calls. Refs make wrong calls. It happened throughout that game. It happens throughout every game. Yeah. You still have to play what's happening in that moment. So yeah. the bottom line was Canada still needed to defend for, you know, five more seconds.
0: Yeah, and I think I think where where that one got um, inflamed is is that it was towards the back end of the fourth quarter, this where season. there's there's calls that are missed throughout an entire game. Yeah. There was a major offsides call that was. Uh, Appropriated incorrectly in the final four, but it was like the second quarter of the game. I remember being like, "Wow!" And it may have been too many men was, uh, we were sitting on the field for that game. It was think it was one of the games that Yale was in, and uh, and so anyway, point being is that you know as things get tighter and the closer you get to the end, but objectively, a bad call is a bad call, call, and they take place throughout the entire exactly. game. Exactly. Exactly. So final moments—that'll be uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, of your career. I mean it's the biggest, you know, yeah. unless I win another one, that would be the well, No, this is still the biggest, you know what?
11: The game this is still play. the biggest one because and that's not even that, you know? Like it's great. I would have been just as happy as if, you know, someone else passing the ball. Yeah. You know how we are, man. We talk 100%. about this all the time, the stress and pressure that we put on ourselves as athletes playing at the highest level and that, you know, we, we talk about how we don't enjoy it enough and we're just constantly trying to get that next one. For someone like me to have gone zero two in world games, yeah, it would have been tough, man. I would have yeah. been, I would have been in a, in a tough place, and you know, I know that's something that we discuss and try and help each other with, you know, from time to time, is just kind of handling that mentally. But I mean, that's going to be the top of my career, I think, ever, just because of how badly I wanted that gold medal more than anything else.
0: Yep. And and I think for athletes that for all of us that lose monumental games and and win big ones too and then play poorly and play well uh i've spent a lot of time with you recently talking about confidence and one thing that you've shared with me is like hey paul remember you have caught thousands of lacrosse balls you've scored hundreds maybe a thousand goals Uh, over a thousand yeah (laughs) it's gotta be (laughs) yeah i guess that's right it's gotta be and so like Remember that, yeah. and it's it was very uh, it was very fundamental for me to hear that because in sports we talk about being in the zone, talk about being in the flow state, and how you can manufacture that. How can you get back there? Because when you're in the flow state, it's like you know scoring a goal is like throwing a, a rock into the ocean. Yep. Everything goes. Um, but I think to simplify it and just say like, hey, I've been here before. I have caught a thousand balls. I've put a thousand balls in the net. Like, don't ever think this thing and go play is something that that you think about and and probably tell yourself all the time. I mean, something
11: Coach K said, you know, he spoke to us over in Israel on the call. He said, listen, rely on your training. You know, know that you've trained and done this, and it's kind of what you have to rely on when things aren't going well.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Suiting Up Podcast, as always, you can feel free to shoot me a note over Twitter. I do my best to respond to every tweet having to do with this show. My handle is at Paul Rabel. Let's continue the conversation there. Also, you can be the first to listen to next season, as well as catch up on previous seasons, including my one-on-one conversations with folks like Bill Belichick, Drew Brees, Venus Williams, and Scott Galloway. All of those and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever You listen to your pods. And when you find the show, Sooting Up Podcast, please consider subscribing, then giving us a rating and review. All three go a very long way, so thank you. Check out this show's episode show notes at SootingUpPodcast.com. Shout out to the crew at Rabelco for putting those together weekly. And shout out to today's show sponsors, Skillshare, ZipRecruiter, and Robinhood. Thank you all very much. Until next season, let's all be reflective, ambitious, and aspirational. I wish you all a fantastic, prosperous, healthy, and happy 2019. It's been a true pleasure, and we'll talk very soon.